Hello there. Welcome to the Heavy Hole. My name is Tom. I'm Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle Buck. And I'm Tom and Will's friend, Justin. Hey. Hey, my friend, Justin. <laughs> What's going on Everybody's here? friend over here. I'm all your friends. Yeah. And th- thank, thank God I have friends, too. In the immortal words of B. Arthur, thank you for being a friend. I, they say I'm just a friend. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. We went from B. Arthur to Biz Marquee in one hot minute. I like it. Right sorry there. for rapping in front of you. Two uh, hot bees. Uh, don't ever be sorry for rapping in front of you, but you might get battled. Uh, uh, step back. What's going on, boys? All right, listen, we're getting a little fun and loose in here, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute uh, what's fueling the party. But, Justin, how was your weekend? The weekend was pretty nice. Okay. Uh, wow. What did I do? Fucking had a release this weekend. Oh, uh, can we talk about this or is this this is a safer this, work, this, it's a family this, show this is a safer work release it's a family Absolutely. show yeah mm-hmm. um okay. uh tom and i've been working on a project for the past couple of a uh, lot of months true and uh uh we just released it on Bandcamp. it's called dangerous thing oh uh, that one yeah featuring uh paula pagunzalan yeah of, of heavy hole fame yeah old news to me because yeah. i'm behind the scenes yeah fucking well known. nothing happens without me knowing no seriously though uh, it was released. Yeah. The people on Patreon got a little special access. Yeah, a little promo uh, codes. Uh, Paula Paguntalan of Heavy Hole Podcast, uh, past guest uh, fame, is on it, providing the vocals. Yeah. It's, it's a wild ride. Yeah, it's pretty fun. So yeah. uh, thank you uh, for all who have listened to it. And if you haven't, uh, check that. Yeah. Check it out. Why not? Uh, you also put the T-shirts up. God damn it. There's uh, T-shirts on heavyholepodcast.com slash shop, which I'm sure Pre-order. I'll ramble on more about at the end of the episode. Pre-order. Uh, pre-order is up, yeah. Uh, pre-order goes until the, uh, hopefully, seven, the 17th of this month. So All right. Whether this episode is out or not. It'll probably be coming out around then. So yeah. uh, good luck to you. Um, we'll, uh, we'll record a separate bumper maybe we tack on to the episodes coming up. We could do that. Yeah, yeah. that'd be cool. Or people could just buy the damn shirt. We'd, you know, do what you got to do. <laughs> get, out of, get out of the way here. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that's about all I got going on. But, uh, Tom, how was your weekend? Oh. That's a great question. Uh, I am just coming off of uh, a, a five-hour podcast recording session from last night. I never had that drink. Who did you guys uh, interview? Why uh, didn't you tell me? I well, would've, I would have. <laughs> we we interviewed every member of Kiss at the same time. Oh, but wow. it was through AI. We just hooked <laughs> them up to Alexa's and let them talk. That's interestingly enough how we wrote the new artificial brain out. <laughs> it, it is fun. Artificial yeah. brain. Uh, artificial Alexa. I think that's either way. Yeah. Um, no, I. Doing roast mortem last night. You might hear it in my voice. I uh, sound broken in. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what we do for our New Year's specials uh, for roast mortem is that we actually roast ten people, make ten mini episodes. It's like a top ten, which is a uh, an idea I love uh, because top tens are just the worst thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so we have to yeah. do the worst thing. That's why we don't do them. On the That's right. Home. Stay tuned. But either way, uh, I had a great time with the boys, and we talked about many historical figures, and I got uh, historically angry and drunk, and uh, it was good. And now I'm nice. a little out of character for you, I guess. I, I'm repenting now. <laughs> it's okay. Well, yeah. I, I'm not historically <laughs> angry. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm historically drunk yet, but I might be getting there. <laughs> um, because the top of my top ten list of things that I like to get for free in the mail uh, top three is definitely beer, all right? Because um, since nobody cares how Will's weekend goes, ever, <laughs> I'm going to let you guys know that I received a bunch of free beer uh, in the mail sponsoring tonight's drinking escapade while we talk death metal. Um, Today's. Well, yeah. We're recovering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you guys did yesterday, uh, but I've been saving. I've been sitting on this uh, beer from Atlas Brewworks in uh. Washington, D.C., 
Uh, back when we used to have shows, and I used to perform live with death metal bands in a long time ago, in a land far away, before I came like the old guy in, in the hood and who lives in the village sweeping out the horse stalls. Um, I, I performed once at Atlas Brewery Works in Washington, D.C. Man, great place, has death metal shows, underground shows. Um, sent us some beer to drink on the podcast and talk about. Uh, we decide to pop one. It's called Blood Orange Ghost. Goes. 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 Pretend it's a Z. I thought it said goose. It's good Up goose. until you pointed this out. I'm not the beer connoisseur. Well, um, I'm not going to say I'm top-notch um, Sam Adams over here, but what I will say is that is a delicious beer. Yeah. Oh. My it, dad's yeah. name was Yingling, and this is really good. This is a great beer. Yes. The, the fruit. Uh, yeah, it, it tastes like a blood orange. I don't know. I still don't know what a ghost is. So a ghost it, is similar to a sour, but oh. I think that they put I, – I, it has, like, a little bit more of a vinegary kind of taste. Like, there's okay. a salt yeah. – kind of aspect to it. It's tremendous detail you have. My girlfriend's a Cicerone. Mm. Oh, there you go. Don't, don't talk to her. Yeah. Hey, um, your, she was from Brazil. parents know? Whoa. I may have previously claimed she's Brazilian, but yeah. in, in fact, she's a Cicerone. She's part of, yeah, she's in, she's connected. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> listen, uh, you can pair this with blue crabs, avocado toast, and day drinking, I so love, we're good. I love yep. when, my, when my beer says blue crabs anywhere on it. I love when my beer just tells me to drink it before the sun goes down. <laughs> I'm, mm. I'm on board. Uh, and we have it's always the, the day somewhere. Uh, listen, <laughs> there's a story to this. Oh. Uh, on the back, it says Sanguine Sunrise. As the story goes, oh. we squeezed the tangy rays of the sun to pack blood orange ghosts with a citrusy punch. Both refreshing and aromatic, its slightly sour orange profile will continue delivering flavor after the sun sets on a hot summer's day or a cold December's day. When we're here talking about death metal, in all seriousness, shout to Atlas Brew Works. Uh, shout to the guys at Metalheads Podcast. We appreciate you. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about this beer. You can go to their website. Yeah, there you go. AtlasBrewWorks.com. Jo- I, I yeah. was looking at the smartphone and he said it. This nice. is AI nice at work. Shit. It's on this analog beer can. Oh, he read it on the, on the analog beer yeah, can. there you go. Okay, that you can cut out the can after you're done and do death metal vocals through it yes uh but no seriously go to atlasbrewworks.com check out their beers you can order beer uh you can check out their menu if you're in the area you know do what you like Mm -hmm. eventually they'll be having metal shows it's a beautiful place it's a beautiful drink um that's that listen i'm drinking straight from the can today so i don't get beer in my beard Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. uh another man that knows a lot about not getting that beer in your beard who is that Paul Speckman, a master in other oh. projects. Yeah, uh, I'm just gonna. Yeah, I'm dropping it like it's hot on oh. everybody today. We got death metal royalty, allegedly the first man to play death metal, um, uh, getting in touch with us today. We're gonna talk to Paul Speckman, a master, while we drink these delectable Atlas Brewery Works beers. Heavy hole worldwide. You got the international phone? I do. Get him on the spec. Call him up. There's more numbers. Put more numbers in. Do the thing. He's in. Uh, he's in Europe. Check. Check it out. Check him up. <laughs> Heavy Hole Podcast. This is Big Will, joined as always by my co-hosts Tom and Justin. And today our guest via Skype is Paul Speckman, 
uh, best known for his band Master uh, and his work with Crabathor and many other acts along the way. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing good. Hanging in there, yo. <laughs> All right. Glad to hear it, man. Uh, and, Paul, we have a lot that we want to ask you. Um, there's a lot to your story and your legacy here uh, that is ongoing, and we want to catch up with what's going on. But we always start from the beginning. Uh, and, no I have to, and, and I wanted to ask you, you're originally from Chicago, Illinois, right? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in the suburb of Chicago, Mount Prospect. There's maybe an hour from Chicago, you know? The northwest suburbs, they call it. Okay, and... I grew up in... Yeah, go ahead. What? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll let you go. No, go ahead. It's fine. I just grew up in a small suburb of, of Chicago, like I said. Well, we, we always ask our guests, are you from uh, a musical family? Are there musicians in your family that predate yourself? Uh, or is there any inclination towards rock or heavy metal uh, from older relatives or something like that? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Uh, my parents, uh, they were not into music at all, you know? I mean, my uh, my mom and stuff was listening to, like, Barbra Streisand and stuff like this, you know? Yeah, the, my uh, dad wasn't into music at all. I mean, we had a stereo in the basement, but he never really played much. Maybe Herb, Herb Albert and Tijuana Brass. <laughs> <laughs> everybody had a stereo. You had to have one. <laughs> Musical as they were, you know? Or the Carpenters. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> Keeping it real. Well, what about Johnny Cash? Was that was that getting played when you were a kid? No. Okay. No. Okay. Until years later, yeah. Okay. I I'm I, that's kind of like a deep reference here because later on I'm going to get into some of your later um, master albums. But before we get into all that, I do know from some of the research that your first band, I believe, was a band called White Cross that was like a high school cover band, and that's why you bought your yeah. first bass, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I joined this band. I was like walking around the, walking around the school, uh, high school or whatever, singing "All Good People" from Yes, and uh, this guy happened to hear me, Ron Cook, and he said, "Oh, we're looking for a singer in our heavy metal band or whatever hard rock band, and you want to come and audition?" And I was like, "Well, I guess I'll check it out," and uh, I got the job. You know, we were doing songs like from bands like UFO and Ted Nugent. You know, the flavor of the day. Some Black Sabbath, some Thin Lizzy. Like I said, cover songs. But it was a good start, a good beginning for me. And uh, then uh, as time went on, I started watching this the bass player, John Bogosian, and and I said, I'm, I'm going to play bass and stuff. And I quit this band, and I started playing bass at home. And I just remembered a, one of my friends in the neighborhood saying, oh, you're never going to be able to play bass and blah, blah, blue, blue. And I practiced my ass off until I could play bass, you know, a couple of years, really. Yeah, the first few years, are, that's the hurdle. And then, and then yeah. you can call yourself the player, you know? Yeah. Well, well I also, uh, from another interview you did, I, I learned that you actually took some bass lessons, but when the guy couldn't teach you uh, a, a track off of Iron Maiden's Killers, you, you, you quit, and that's when you kind of went independent with, with bass learning. Yeah, I took one lesson from the guy. Mm -hmm. and then I, I went back for a second lesson, and I said, you know, can you can you figure out this part on, on the song Killers, you know, in the, in the middle? Do triplets, you know, and yeah. oh, yeah, I can do it, whatever, and, and I went there, and he didn't figure it out. 
And so, uh, you know, I took some more of his bullshit lesson there that day, and then I went home and I figured it out by myself. And I said, I don't need a fucking teacher for that. I can do it myself. And that was the end of it for him. No more lessons, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I just started playing a lot of records, figuring it out myself, you know? And uh, and is it, is it true you ended up working um, at 7-Eleven and playing bass, uh, trying to learn Steve Harris bass lines while working at 7-Eleven? Say it again. Uh, is it true you ended up working at 7-Eleven and trying to learn Steve Harris bass lines uh, after that? This is true. I worked the night shift at 7-Eleven for about a year. Until <laughs> I, got, I got busted for stealing, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you if there was any interesting experiences, like somebody else stealing from you or something, but I, I guess that's what well, happened. Well, the point was that, uh, you know, I was eating food in the middle of the night and drinking stuff, and they considered that to be stealing, you know? <laughs> I mean, you're in a 7-Eleven, and, and you're working all night, and you're hungry and shit. Of course you're going to steal some nachos and, and maybe a Pepsi or whatever, you know? It's right there, yeah. Be built into the cost I mean, of having right the employee. I mean, okay, I wasn't smoking cigarettes, so at least I wasn't stealing cigarettes from the guy, you know. But, but I was eating food and drinking stuff, and you know, and, and later on in the year, he's like, oh, you know, there's stuff missing, and I do the inventory, and we're short on food. And I said, well, of course, I, you know, sometimes I'm eating some stuff and I'm thirsty. I mean, you got to provide me something here for nutrition, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I the guy, the guy ended up coming in and bothering me and stuff, and watching me after a while, and coming in at the night shift and spending the night with me and stuff. And finally, I just quit, you know. But, but I was practicing bass. I mean, he wasn't there, you know. So I was playing bass, you know. When there, there weren't a lot of customers in the middle of the night, you know, between say three and seven o'clock, you know, just before the mad rush, I would practice on my bass, of course. All right, man. That, that, that it's just interesting to know and. Um... You know, having traveled around a little bit on, on the road and, and uh, been having different type of jobs myself, I know sometimes the night shift can be kind of hectic at those places. You never know who's going to walk in. So uh, now I ask this respectfully because I've heard you speak very candidly about it in other interviews. Um, you said one time that around that time you also sold weed and were busted by the cops before you started moving furniture. And I'm asking a lot of this because I can relate, and a lot of musicians I know can relate to these type of experiences. Yeah, um, this is true, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was dealing weed, you know, and making a living at it and having a good time and smoking the weed, too. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I got busted, obviously. I got set up by a friend, and life changed after that. And uh, I borrowed money from a buddy of mine who was a truck driver, and I had to start moving furniture, you know? Well, it was a hard time for a couple of years until I got until I paid him back, but point is, is that uh, I got off with a slap on the wrist because uh, Tom Swift, which is the name of the lawyer, was a buddy of mine. Well, actually, it was a buddy of my manager at the time. I actually had a manager at this time, and Tom Swift got me off with a slap on the wrist, you know? I think I paid $2,000 for the, for the uh, police... Uh, lunch fund or whatever and <laughs> whatever and I got off on it I had to borrow the money like I said from the truck driver from Lanny but whatever I paid him back and I moved furniture for a few years after that I actually made a decent living moving furniture <laughs> no, that's a good gig man yeah and, and as I said I say this all respectfully I've worked um, uh, mo mostly blue collar labor type jobs myself um, and, 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 you know, like I said, a lot of people, I think, can relate to that, especially in the death metal scene. It's kind of uh, a lot of blue-collar musicians. Um, yeah. So 
around this time now, uh, are we into like 1982 when Warcry formed? Yes, this is this is around the time I was. I think I was working in Seven Eleven, maybe in 1981. Mm-hmm. I'd have to look in my in my notes in here, but it doesn't matter. But yeah, this <laughs> Warcry. That was the first band I actually played in. Well, I played bass and I actually wrote a song and life uh, started picking up with Warcry. You know, we we were opening opening for bands like Twisted Sister and Queensryche and Mountain and Joe Perry Project. You know, we did some of our own shows sometimes too. We started building the following at that time, sure. Yeah, and I've actually read that um, amongst other people, Lee Dorian of Cathedral uh, credits Warcry as a bit of an early influence. Uh, yeah. for, for that Sabbathy doom sound that has kind of gone on to become its own thing over the years. Yeah, sure. Same with Trouble as well. It was another doom band from Chicago. Obviously, they they went a lot further, but but yeah, that that, that was obviously we got it from Black Sabbath, you know. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we tried to do our own thing, and and uh, that's that's really how I got started to playing concerts live. Really, you know, I mean. I was actually playing live bass in, in front of people, and that was a good good start for me, you know? Yeah, and, and you've actually... Now, I I know, I believe, the, the drummer Bill Schmidt, you, that's how you met him, was in War Cry, right? Who was also the original drummer of Master? Yeah, well, he auditioned for the band, and uh, after Joe Iacino quit, he auditioned, and we took him on, and, uh, and then I started practicing, and he played one show with us and got fired after one show, you know? So, uh, he screwed up uh, the song Black Sabbath from Black Sabbath and oh, okay. he got pissed off and blamed it on the guitar player and threw a drumstick at <laughs> the guitar player and that was the end of his uh, one hit wonder deal with Warcry uh, okay. then uh, after that uh, the, the Warcry guitar player Marty Fitzgerald he turned me on to to a seven inch from Venom, it had uh, "Live Like an Angel, Die Like a Devil," and, and "League with Satan" on the back, whatever. And the seven inch changed my life. You know, I I wanted to get heavy. I didn't want to play in Warcry anymore. At this time, Warcry started going more commercial. Motley Crue started taking off, and they decided they want to go in a more commercial direction. And after hearing that Venom, and obviously continually listening to Motorhead and Angel Witch and Judas Priest, I wanted to go in a heavier direction. And the drummer and I, we did, you know. So I believe you officially start Master in 83, right? Yeah, we got as far as a couple songs. He wrote a few songs. I wrote a few songs. And then uh, we auditioned guitar players. We couldn't find anybody for a long time. And then he, uh, he, he gave up. You know, we couldn't find anybody really that was fit what we were looking for, you know. He basically gave up and joined another band called Mayhem. They changed their name like over the years on Facebook and stuff to Mayhem Incorporated. But anyway, they were a band called Mayhem from Chicago. So he went and played drums for them and did a demo and I started my own band called called uh, Death Strike. And then maybe a year later he came crawling back and you know <laughs> the, 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 the Mayhem thing didn't work out for him. He got as far as a demo but I don't know. He wasn't easy to get along with. But Like an idiot the next year I took him back you know and uh, the rest is history pretty much okay because there's a lot to sort there's a lot you know, I mean you know that you have an extensive discography and there's a lot to sort out as a as a fan 
Um, sure. Uh, so just to stop you there, uh, Master kind of uh, takes takes off from Warcry, uh, but then you guys don't work it out yet. So that's where Deathstrike comes in. Exactly, because Master didn't get as far as recording anything. Mm-hmm. Deathstrike was first. Because, like I said, we couldn't find a guitar player. You know, Schmidt was ready to ready to record some songs that he had written, but we never found a guitar player. So we were just playing bass and drums. And then, like I said, he quit the he quit his own band, whatever. He quit the band Master, and my father uh, passed on, and I was left at my house uh, while they were while the house was up for sale, showing the house, and I was playing bass in the basement, and I had a PA system down there, and I was singing, and I wrote the song called "The Truth," you know. And uh, Middlebrun, the guitar player for Master, who would end up being the ba- in the band Master later, he uh, he actually was one of the guys that auditioned, and he was more than Judas Priest at the time and the Twin Guitar Attack and a lot more commercial stuff. Anyway, and so uh, I I read an ad in the Illinois Entertainer, this trade magazine, it's still in existence today, and there was Chris in there again, and I called him. And he and I uh, would end up putting together Deathstrike. Okay, and Deathstrike, if I got it right, you record the album Fucking Death in 85, and it's not released until 89? Exactly. It was only a demo. It wasn't an album. Okay. The second part, we recorded another demo in 91 with a different lineup and ended up putting the whole thing out as an album. But the original band, yeah, was in 85. You got it right. But, and then also in 85 is that original Master. Uh, you got I, it, Master. That's what I said. He ended up crawling back to me in the band and, right, right. In, uh, on July 4th, actually, 85. And by October, we were recording the Master demos as well. Yeah? Okay. So that was a busy okay. year, 1985, for me. Yeah? It seems like that. And what, you know, what I'm getting at is that um uh you know we we've, we've brought up this conversation back and forth um over the, the it's a very common frequent conversation nowadays uh of who you know who was quote unquote the first death metal band and it gets boiled down into this kind of binary argument between possessed seven churches and death scream bloody gore a lot of the time uh and i'm trying yeah. to make the point that in 1985 you you kind of recorded what's considered two of the seminal death metal recordings in death strike and master in one year you got it. Yeah. Uh, I just, you know, for some reason we got lost in the shuffle because we didn't sign that contract with with, uh, with Combat Records. That was where we screwed up, yo. We got a contract, and uh, the contract came on, uh, what was it, uh, January? No, December 31st, 1985, yo. Mm-hmm. So we got the contract, and then that famous idiot Kim Fowley happened to be hanging out and doing something in the studio there at Sea Grape Studios in Chicago where we did a lot of our recordings. And uh, they called me from the studio and said, this famous guy is here and blah, blah, blah. And why don't you come over and, and meet him? And we went to meet him and one thing led to another and he said he would read our contract. Well, he turned that combat contract into a million, you know, million dollar contract. <laughs> this is a guy that wrote songs for Kiss. He was the pervert that was... Uh, was managing the runaways, mm. raping some of the girls in the band. We would find out later or whatever, but they're still talking about that now. He wrote songs for Kiss. You know, he was a famous guy, so he charged me a dollar a minute and read that contract for about 200 hours in oh, in some mansion somewhere in the suburbs. 
he was like uh, renting a bedroom in some guy's mansion. I forget who the big guy was at the time. It was a long time ago. But anyway, he charged me a dollar a minute. And he turned the contract into a multi-millionaire contract, multi-million dollar contract. And of course, Combat, when they read that, they threw it in the garbage. That was the end of it. They were only offering like $1,000 to record, man. These uh, these contracts that uh, Death and Possessed signed or whatever, they were for no money, dude. And, and just for penis. I mean, it was a shit contract. You know, I think it was like three or four albums they wanted, and they were giving you a thousand bucks to record, and it was really shitty, yo. Yeah. At that time, they didn't know what they had, and they, nobody knew that this style was going to blow up, you know? Right. Hmm. Yeah. So and we made a mistake, you know, like I said, we made a mistake, of course. If we would have signed that contract, things would have been a lot different, I'm sure, you know? Yeah, well, uh, you know, you can always you can always think back. And just a, a disclaimer quickly, just because of the similarity, um, you're talking about KIM, Kim Fowley, uh, a, a famous kind of music uh, business personality, behind the scenes person, uh, completely unrelated to King Fowley of deceased. Exactly. We, we recently nothing to do with the guys. Yo, Kim Fowley. Yeah, we yeah like we. I said, he was the uh, infamous manager of the Runaways. Yo, yeah, John yeah. Dead and Peter Ford, that guy. People can Google that um, if they have a strong constitution, uh, but um, uh, that and that's that's interesting there. So I guess that's kind of like, you know, we talk about recording the, those albums, particularly the master album in '85, and it doesn't really see the light of day until '89, '90, and maybe exactly. maybe that's why it doesn't get the recognition. Um, well, exactly, so much. a lot happened during that time. You know, we yeah. got lost in trouble. But I mean, uh, you go back in history and stuff, and. You talk to a lot of these bands, and uh, the Swedish scene, for example, the whole uh, Scandinavian scene was also influenced by the Death Strike demo. A lot of these guys will tell you that, you know. Uh, well, something I wanted to ask you about when we talk about bands, um, I mean, obviously back in the 80s, you were kind of there in the heyday in the beginning of the tape trading scene and underground metal, right? Sure, that was a good time. <laughs> Sure. We, yeah, we, we celebrate. I kind of I'm a little bit younger. I got in it at the tail end of it in the 90s before the internet really took took over with the file sharing and everything. Um, yeah. And we talk about it from time to time. Something I picked up in a, an interview that you did was that Chris Reefer from Autopsy actually called you up, uh, threatening you over some sort of debacle of, about, about tape trading. And you guys have yeah, since well, squashed well, actually, that. he sent, he sent me money for the Abomination demo and a T-shirt, and uh, it never arrived. Well, whatever, I sent him another one, you know? <laughs> it happened. Yeah. You know, I sent him another one, and he called back and said, hey, man, sorry, I love your music, and, and I got the stuff now. And I'm like, man, eh, okay, shit happens, you know? <laughs> the world is small, you know, of course. Yeah, well, a lot back then, the death metal scene was a lot smaller, too, right? Yeah, you know, like, for example, Bill Steer, he he sent me uh, the Napalm Death Patch when, when he quit the band. He said, oh, I got a new band, uh, you know, it's car it's called Carcass and it's gonna do something in the future and cool Paul and he sent me this killer napalm death patch. It's a rare one. I got it somewhere still. But I mean uh, it was a handwritten letter. Uh, obviously back in the day we wrote each other, you know, there was yeah. no computer back then. It was a lot different, you know. It's really sad that uh I burned all those letters, you know. I, I had a couple garbage bags full of those letters. I got pissed off one day and started a fire at my parents' house in the backyard and burned them all, yo. <laughs> oh, man. That was probably That's some too cool bad, stuff in there. I would, yeah. have some, I would have had some good shit to share with people, but, you know, whatever. Shit happens, right? Yep. 
Well, yeah, that, that's yeah. still a good story, though. <laughs> Got that yeah. at least. It's better than not being able to find them. Yeah. What? Yeah. I, I mean, well, that that's that, that's interesting because I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm a lifelong death metal fan. I've I've been in different bands and stuff. I know what it's like to really take this stuff personally and have a lot of passion for it. You obviously yeah. have have accomplished and have been at it for much longer than me. Um, so I'm just what I'm getting at is is the kind of that the struggle, the pain, the personal sacrifice that goes along with it. Does does that speak to it? Well, you know why you would burn these letters and stuff. Was it a period where you just weren't getting what you wanted out of the music? Or, exactly, or, it was a period where nothing was happening with my band. You know, I was yeah. getting no no respect, no success, nothing. Hmm. I got pissed off and went in the backyard and just burned all the shit to the ground. You know, to ashes. Wow. Like I said, looking back on it, I wish I didn't do that because I had some great letters in there that would have fucking confused the shit out of a lot of people if I shared them, you know. <laughs> a lot of people would have been interested and go, wow, what the, did they really say that? What the fuck? You know, doesn't matter. It's water under the bridge. Hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, a routine. Well, that's that's a great perspective, and especially to maybe people who are struggling with their own things um, in life now to remember. Uh, and and you know, getting back on the bands, you kind of explained for us what the deal was with Death Strike and Master, and if people were a little mm -hmm. confused on the timeline. Something I'm interested in also is Abomination, um, because that's a band that kind of is, is completely outside of that circle of Death Strike and Master, right? That you joined. Okay, so what happened was is next was Funeral Bitch. Okay. Uh, I, I joined a band called Assault in Chicago. They're originally called Assault. And uh, guitar player said, oh, we should change the name to Funeral Bitch. And so <laughs> changed the name to Funeral Bitch, which was a master song that was in, in probably uh, late 86, you know. And uh, we did a couple master songs, and he wrote some songs, and we did some Assault songs. And it was more uh, kind of grindcore sort of stuff, really fast and ridiculous with the silly blast beats and stuff. I say silly because back then it was silly to me, you know, whatever. A lot of bands made, I had a lot of success with blasting, so don't get me wrong, I'm just saying. But back then it was kind of silly to me because it was new. And uh, so what happened there is that I would go and practice with this funeral bitch. We did some shows. We played with uh, the Crow Mags and some really, some decent shows. And uh, again, we were like the local, local guys filling in, trying to get all the good good slots, you know, and we did. We got some decent slots in Chicago. And anyway, so late night, like like with a woman or whatever, you're cheating on your girlfriend or whatever, or your wife. <laughs> Not that I do that. But <laughs> allegedly. allegedly. Is, uh, is that I was uh, cheating on the guys and I stole the, I, I saw the drummer from Abomination. He was in a band called Abomination. They already had a band called Abomination. And uh, so I would practice with Funeral Bitch and then, uh, an hour later, I would get in my car and I would drive over to another part of Chicago and jam with the other guys till, you know, till the morning hours for another three hours and, you know, till maybe three o'clock in the morning. And eventually I would leave Funeral Bitch and just, just uh, join this drummer and he, he stole the name Abomination and said, ah, that's my name. I paid for all this shit and blah, blah, blue, blue. And so then we became Abomination. We got the guitar player from Impulse Manslaughter, Mike Schaefer. And we started working on a demo. And so that was Abomination. That was uh, 87 and 88. We had a different guitar player in 88. And, 88. and uh, so then we got the, got the record deal again in, 
an 89 from Nuclear Blast. And uh, that was for Abomination. And then also uh, within a week, we got a, another, uh, another record deal for Master as well in 89. Busy, busy Any questions? Years. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just trying to get, I'm trying, trying to get it all straight. Trying to get it all straight. Uh, yeah, it's easy, man. And, well, and I have a follow-up question about Abomination. Um, sure. but, but first, okay. just just to catch the listeners and myself up, we're talking about Death Strike and Master recording '85. Those because the Death Strike album uh, or or the recording was finally released properly in like what what was it '91 or '90. Yeah, 91, sure. But it was only a demo, like I said. And yeah. in, in, in 91, we also did a second, another demo with four more tracks with different people. Okay, they're good songs and stuff, but we didn't capture the same sound. It's, it's I, I don't like it so much, but whatever. The songs are good, but we didn't capture the feeling. And that's, what I, that's a reality that I learned that time, too, is that you can't go back. You're never going to capture what you did 30 years ago. It's not happening, dude. You have to go forward, yeah. Uh, yeah, right. in- interesting, interesting, especially this day and age. Uh, and I'll leave it at that. Um, uh, with you know, with other with with other acts and respect to other bands. Yeah, well, it's, it's other technology and stuff. You know what I mean? Things are more polished today. You know, I always talk about this when I talk about old school. Back in the day, you know, you really you really had to know how to play your instrument, dude. Mm. There was no punching, you know. Yeah. If the drummer didn't know how to play the song or he fucked up the song, you had to do it again and again and again and again <laughs> until you got it right. Today, you can go in the studio and a drummer hits a hits a bad cymbal or a tom or a snare or whatever, and you just punch it in on a computer and it's fixed in 10 seconds or less, you know? But back when we were recording The Abomination and The Master and The Funeral Bitch and, and uh, The Death Track and stuff, you really had to fucking know how to play the songs, you know? You had to practice a lot. You had to be ready because you didn't have the, the money to, to spend even back then, you know? I'm not saying you didn't have mo- you didn't have money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think that speaks to, like, how you, how back in the day you had bands, each with their own identity um, that were working, and now you have this proliferation of, I guess, more like projects uh, because the technology has allowed people to um, to record music a lot more easily, you know? Yeah, and and that's what I'm trying to say, is that uh, I, I still record in the studio. I still bring the band to the studio. Okay. Mm-hmm. Know what I mean, I mean, right now this, you know, with all this bullshit for the last eight months or whatever or nine months, I could have recorded a new master album. I could have done a million projects, you know, but I'm not into it. It's just not. It's not real for me. You know? I'm not saying that I don't. Uh, I don't record with it. Like, I do this project, the Johansson Speckman project. We just released, like, the, the fifth album. And he actually sent me a new song today for album number six. So, wow. and, yeah, But the point is, with them, I, I will say that the difference is with them, they send me the whole album recorded. And then I go to, the, I actually still go to a studio. And uh, and then I sing, I sing the tracks. And then they mix and master it over there and, in Norway or whatever, you know. But what I'm saying, I still go to a studio. I'm yeah. not sure if they're recording at home. Maybe they are. You know, I, I really don't care. I guess in that in that uh, retrospect, but I still go to a studio to do my vocals as well. I'm not going to do them at home. It's just not real to me. You know? I, I I can respect that. I understand. Um, I'm I'm also very hesitant to uh, to keep to keep up with technology, so to speak. Uh, so this is the reason why there is no master album right now. 
because I don't my, the lineup the, the newer lineup it's uh, the guys are in America one's in uh, Miami and one's in Los Angeles and until we can get together and record I'm not going to do an album or I'll do an album with some other people out here you know we'll see what happens the reality is it's this coronavirus that's fucking up my life but on the other hand like I said it you know, we could record online. The guys could send me their parts, but it's just not re it's not real to me, and it's just not the spark that I'm looking for. I, I want to do it. I want to sit down and write these songs with you in the studio. You know, I want to practice them, be ready, and go in and record them. I don't want to do it online. It's, it's strange to me. Maybe I'm a weirdo or something, but it's strange to me, really. I think that's the kind of old school mentality that um, master fans have come to uh, expect and, and, and respect. Um, and and the, the question I wanted to ask you about Abomination before we get too far ahead into sure. uh, how Master works nowadays uh, as an international <laughs> band and everything, I noticed for the self-titled Abomination album, the first one, uh, if I could say, they were like kind of odd time signatures, and it seemed very technical uh, and, and rhythmically kind of unique, um, whereas in 91, the Tragedy Strikes follow-up album was a lot more straightforward and locked into the groove. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it was a lot more polished in a sense, you know? Mm -hmm. It's because uh, when we did the first Abomination record, we really didn't know what the fuck we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that's actually what made it special. You know, we were, we were playing a, a million miles a minute in a bunch of parts, and and uh, like you said, it's strange time changes and stuff, and we really didn't know what we were doing. It was something new for us, you know? And uh, this the only problem with that record is the quality of the, of the mix or whatever, or the, which because the guys, uh, they, uh, they wanted to use this guy, his name was Bob Pucci. And it, it even sounds like a dog, like a woman or whatever. But anyway, <laughs> it was like, uh, some some commercial heavy heavy metal bands you know they were like commercial and the guys were like oh paul you know i want to we want to try this studio and stuff and they, they got this great heavy metal stuff coming out of there and hey the the, the the heavy metal stuff really was great but it was really slow and not so crazy and technical and insane and and so we went in there to this poser studio and recorded this shit <laughs> it was really hard to do you know I mean, the guy had, you know, the poofy hairstyle and everything. And, you know, I mean, yeah. no disrespect to Bob Pucci. You can find him on Facebook, I'm sure. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was a mistake. Now, the point is, now the second album um, was, was like you said, smoother and not so many changes. Um, and that had a lot to do with me because I was the one who produced the album. It's got a way crunchier tone. It's heavier in that sense. But maybe you're right. We we maybe we smoothed it out a little too much. You know, maybe it was more like Master in a sense, the second album. But I still think there's some good tracks on it. But but like, the first one was way out there. I, I think you're right. Well, yeah, I don't say that to, to downplay Tragedy Strikes. It's good in its own right. Yeah, you know, I got you yeah. Know. But but the self-titled album, the first one. What I thought was interesting about it is. Uh, not only nowadays, but in the last like um, several years, you've had like uh, tech death and technical death metal become its own thing. And that first Abomination album kind of predates a lot of that with the uh, the quirky time signatures and all that. So that's that's why I ask. Well, that's cool. I appreciate that. Yeah. Nobody ever actually said that to me before. That's interesting. We I we try to do all the research. I I you know it's um it's great. Yeah, well, you definitely got the research there. You know, and the one thing I wanted to say about Funeral Bitch is. That uh, this this band Funeral Bitch 
maybe you never heard the demos. If you haven't, go back and check it out. This stuff predates Napalm Death and stuff, and and same thing. It was way ahead of its time. Yeah. You listen to that silly uh, McMack Attack song or whatever, for for example, and it's it was like Stormtroopers of Death, you know, but but our our crazy style of it, you know. So it predates Napalm Death, and and they were saying like in Kerrang magazine that these famous guys like Don K were telling me slow down, dude, you know. They were like into the master and they, they thought the abomination and the funeral bitch were just too aggressive and too crazy and fast. And and then uh, some of these bands really started hitting it really big. And I thought, wow, these guys are burning me. And these other bands are doing the same shit we were doing a year before are having huge success. And that's basically what happened in a lot of, a lot of times to me. You know? We were always like early and didn't get the respect because something happened, you know. Yeah, That's time, life, timing you know. is everything, you know. Being the yeah, first exactly. to do it isn't always gonna gonna pay off, you know. I agree, but whatever. The, the great thing about my life is that is that I made it into uh, into a life. I don't have some shitty job. I, I I know that there's a bunch of guys out there in these bigger bands right now that are that are looking for jobs and working at Burger King and McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts. I've heard some real horror stories. You know what? Not me. I make money from my music, t-shirts, sweats, shorts, patches, etc. You know? Yeah, and even when I'm not touring, I'm I'm still working right here in my little little bedroom office. It's wonderful. Nice. <laughs> it sounds nice. Well, let's go back to where we were. Sorry, I jumped ahead of you there. <laughs> no, no, it's not, it's you're painting a, a nice, cozy picture, and I do want to get into. Uh, you know, your your life, um, I guess, since moving forward in the Czech Republic and what's going on there. But there's a lot of ground to cover here. And okay, let's keep going. No problem. Yeah, man. Going. Yeah, man. I, t- I took my notes diligently here. And as we move on, we All talked right. about Abomination. I dropped that. Now, we're in 1991, so we got to mention, and on the seventh day, God created Master. Um, okay. Well, you know, an album that's probably one of your most like notable ones that people associate Master with uh, in the context of that. Twenty-five thousand copies. Yeah. Well, they, you, you so you know better than me. Now yeah, it sold five thousand copies. Yeah. Sold five thousand copies. Uh, Twenty-five thousand. Twenty-five thousand copies. Okay. That yeah, yeah. That sounds better. Uh huh. Now, what I want to know about that is that you know we talk about how in '85 you were already doing it, then then you had some uh, some difficulties with getting it out there. Uh, mm-hmm. Other bands come along that are kind of in- influenced and in doing something similar. They blow up. Now it's '91. Uh, was was it your choice? Let's I'll go say. back a little bit further. Let's okay. go back just yeah. a touch further. Let's, let's go back to '89. Mm-hmm. Okay, like like I was saying to you, we got that uh, we got those offers for uh, Abomination and Master Records. You know. Okay. And. Uh, in 89, uh, we went in the studio and recorded that we we actually, we practiced for two days to do the, the uh, master debut. And uh, without the guitar player, the guy was always too busy with chicks, <laughs> which is fine. I, I like chicks too. I'm, I'm, you know, women are great. You know, okay. But, uh, <laughs> you know, after, the, after several years of not jamming together, I managed to get a record deal for these guys. Thanks to Abomination, Abomination got the record deal for Master, okay? And actually, that whole thing came together with uh, Joe Caper from Righteous Pigs. I I ran into him at the Forest Preserve when I was moving furniture during that shitty time after I got arrested. 
I went to the uh, to the forest and uh, with my buddy Mick, and we we're drinking some old styles. And these two Harley Davidsons pull up, and it's uh, Joe Capers on one of them, and Paul Nino's from high school on another. And we're talking and stuff. And Capers like, you know, I, Paul, how you doing, man? I love fucking Master and Destro. You don't remember me, I'm sure. And honestly, I didn't remember him. Okay, he was right. Okay, <laughs> but. The reality here is that he's like, you know, we're, we're on this new label by my band Righteous Pigs, and it, it seems to be working. It's a label called Nuclear Blast. And, and I say, you know, I just happen to have this fucking demo in my pocket. Because at that time, I was so uh, hard up and desperate trying to make something happen that I was walking around with the Red Abomination demo in my pocket. And I gave it to Joe Caper. And one week later, I had a record deal for Abomination. And a week after that, because of Mitch Harris, I, he's, he put in the word a nuclear blast that they should sign master. Well, a week later after that, I got the master contract. Anyway, okay. Okay, all right. That's that's a, that's a that's a good um, segue there. Now, and and then, how is it your choice, or does or is the label's influence to record with Scott Burns at Morris Sound Studio? Because that was obviously okay. a, that was so, obviously a very hot. So move here's what happened. So we so we ended up doing that that master demo, uh, not demo, the master uh, record at um, um, Solid Sound in uh, studios in Chicago. And Nuclear Blast, uh, they didn't like the uh, the mixes we did. They they said, oh, it's, it's it doesn't have a good sound and it's, it's too heavy and blah 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 and and uh, so then uh, we said, oh, okay, so you know we'll. Uh, we'll go and record in Morris Sound with Scott Burns. So we we went in there and and uh, and uh, the lineup changed. Uh, I used Aaron Nickius on drums from uh, Abomination and Jim Martinelli from a band, a famous band from Chicago called Burnt Offering, another underground legend that didn't make it. But anyway, uh, so I got these guys together and we went to Morris Sound and we recorded the songs again. Added some other songs that I had originally written for Death Strike and Master years ago. They fell by the wayside, or whatever. And then Nuclear Blast decided again, we don't like it. <laughs> we don't like the recording that we did. He didn't more sound. So we're gonna have Scott Burns remix the first Master recording he did in uh, Hoffman Estates at Solid Sound and release that as Master. And because we put so much money into the Second recording, we're going to release that as the Speckman project. Does that clear up anything or not? That does. It, it, it helps clear up a lot now because that's the, that's the thing too is that you got the Speckman project, you got the Master, um, and and Maybe. now that's um, the you're talking about the first Master album, I guess. I guess you could yes. call it the self-titled album. When you got we, it. When we get to on the seventh day, God created master. Is it a similar situation? Why you end up working? No, now, now this this time, okay. Now now we get to on the seventh day, which is uh, uh, a year later. Okay. Yes. Let's say ninety one or whatever. We get there and uh, I record a demo with uh, with Martinelli, Burnt Offering, and Aaron on drums for on the seventh day, and Nuclear Blast and Scott Burns hear the demo and say we're not ready. <laughs> so the demo they said the songs they didn't like the songs that we weren't ready and I told them to stick it up their ass <laughs> and uh, we went and recorded on the seventh day anyway you know? and 
25,000 copies later, well, I guess we were ready, weren't we? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I just reviewing the album uh, in research, it was it was good for me as a fan. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't, I'm not I a record label a lot guy. Of, a lot of strange things that happened. That's all I can tell you. Well, the question I want to get to is why? Um, how do you end up working with Paul Masvidal, who people know from Cynic? Uh-huh. Okay. There you go. <laughs> good question. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so Martinelli... Uh, he caught, he with a buddy, a, a roadie friend of ours from Burnt Offering, comes with Martinelli on the on uh, to record the uh, on the seven day sessions. And the guys decide uh, after a couple of days of we just started recording, the guys decided to stay out all night, drink too much, come back, and start an argument with our then short lived manager Jim. And they got into shoving match and fuck you and blah, blah. And Jim Martinelli went home. So then I called in a buddy, another guy from Chicago, flew him out there. And Scott Burns didn't like Jeff's guitar playing. So Jeff got smoked and had to just hang out for a week because he, he got a ticket, you know. And he was stuck there basically hanging out with, with Aaron, the drummer, after the drums were recorded, doing nothing. Wow. He really got burned the most, but... Anyway, so uh, Scott Burns called up uh, Masvidal, uh -huh. and Masvidal came down. He flew down. It cost me a hundred bucks to fly him down, which was nothing. And then, uh, then uh, I think maybe we paid him a hundred dollars a song. And and what he would do, which was really interesting and cool, I thought, is that uh, they would put we put each song on a loop for an hour. And he would just play a solo for an hour, and then we'd go in, and he would record it. And that was really cool, actually. Okay. Wow. So this is how Masvidal got in there. Masvidal, like I said, everything was really, really reasonably priced. And and uh, John Tardy came in and did some backups on the album for a six-pack of beer, because, of course, he was friends with Burns. And <laughs> I, guess I, I guess maybe... Uh, uh, Burns thought something about Master. Later on, he would say, you know, oh, they fuck Master, and I don't know what they were so about, but, but whatever. Tardy came in for a six-pack of beer, and Masvidal was cheap, too, you know? <laughs> what? I, I appreciate their help. Don't get me wrong. I, uh, they of, were a big of course. Valuable. Of course. Valuable. Yeah. Yeah, valuable, good players, good help, and I would never say anything bad about that. But I will say one thing. Masvidal, you know, for the last 20 years or whatever, longer after that, he doesn't like the album. He said the solos are shitty and blah, blah, blah. And I I actually like some of the solos. I thought they were pretty good. Yeah, they're fun. I, I really enjoyed those, that, those leads. Yeah, me too, but he, he said they weren't any good. But whatever, teach his own, you know. I still respect the guy and wish him the best and whatever. It's fine, you know. Well, everybody looks back at their own progression and their own discography with, with their own eyes. Uh, as, yeah. a, as a fan, it's kind of an interesting mashup being able to be a fan of both Cynic and Master and know the history and yeah. listen to that album. And that's cool. So, you know, like I said, no disrespect. I was just a little taken aback when he said he didn't like them. <laughs> I like the solos. I think he did a good job, yeah. especially for the time he had. You know, come on. He had an hour for each solo. He did it all in one day. It was fucking fantastic. So, yeah, and it's it's actually cool to, to re-listen to thinking about um, that and that process. Uh, and 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 like you said, twenty five thousand copies later. Now, I mean, while while we're talking about this, because that, like I said, that kind of is, is an album that gets brought up a lot in, in context. Mm -hmm. and, and Master has a huge discography. 
Uh, have you been making any plans lately to reissue anything, uh, maybe particularly on like vinyl or cassette, like a lot of people are doing now? Is there anything coming up? Everything has been reissued a million times, man. <laughs> Where I, you been? I know, and then it sells out real quick, and, and we're still stuck trying to collect them, man. You know, you got it's, <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. it's a cycle. Uh, I think that on the seventh day has been reissued at least ten times already. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I just figured. I figured you might years. have the, the yearly reissue report uh, or something, you know. But I mean, every two years, every two years, somebody wants to reissue the first album, the second album, some of the later ones, or they want to do vinyl or cassettes, and uh, you know, and then I get copies of the stuff, and the shit sells out in a month. It's like yeah, I've been it. living up the first two albums for twenty years, <laughs> which is actually pretty cool if you think about it. Oh yeah. It's an it, investment, man. That's uh, I'm that, not complaining, you know. That's the dream for a lot, a lot of metal uh, musicians. I'm I'm waiting for like a, a box set of tapes of like the check years or something like that, and I'll just scoop that up when it comes out. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe someday. I mean, that, that's the point. Is that what's what's strange and interesting at my age is that, uh, you know, every year there's more, more offers for for new records, for new contracts from all over the world. Yeah. Well, it, it's it doesn't stop. Is what I'm trying to say, it's still for a new record, for old records, for everything. It just continues. Yeah, I, I think. Well, I've heard it said that as opposed to maybe pop music and hip hop, uh, heavy metal tends to respect its its uh, elders and its pioneers more as new generations come and go. Which is a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You're right. And and something on that note. Um, uh, you know, I did watch a YouTube interview that you did when you were on tour in the Netherlands in 1990, and I, if I got it right, you were playing two shows a day. With, oh man, yeah. with, that, that interview is terrible. I was so fucking retarded at that time, but I was a young guy. <laughs> that, well, that's what Paul Masvidal is saying about the actually, about the solos, actually, man. You know, I, I just want to say I actually just saw that interview maybe two weeks ago, the first time ever. I never saw it before. Uh, well, and when I that interview, I just said, "What a fucking asshole!" <laughs> <laughs> well, we yep. all we all look back at ourselves, man. Yeah, yeah. But okay. I, but there was but a. Going pro back to what you said, yeah, we did, we did, and this might have been part of the reason why I was an asshole because I was tired for one thing. We did. Uh, Abomination was the support band. Pungent Stench was the co-headliner. Mm -hmm. Master was the headliner. I did twenty-six dates like this. Jeez. Wow. Uh, so that may have something to do with why I was such an asshole in that interview. I was thinking about that. It was a hard time, you know. Yeah. I did the same yeah. years later with with Master and and uh, Kravathor, but it was much easier then. You know, I wasn't the lead vocalist in Kravathor. I was just doing backups mostly. I sang a few songs. You know, with Abomination and Master, I had to sing two sets every night, just change a shirt during Punch and <laughs> Stench, and try and try and. Uh, Wipe off the sweat and then go go up and say, "Hey, good evening, it's me again, we're master." <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's putting in work, man. Um, and something you said kind of profoundly in that interview. The reason I bring it up is, uh, okay. uh, you know, the guy the guy asked you, you know, he said, "Well, a lot of bands say they're going to come back and they don't." And something you said was, "Well, whether it's me and a bunch of other guys, I'll be here." I'm talking about returning to Europe and returning to the Netherlands. And you said that in 1990. It's pretty fair to say you, you held your end of the bargain there. That's true. Yeah. I ended up moving to Europe. You know, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a profound moment, and it kind of sets the tone maybe for some of the some of the later uh, uh, questions I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you about. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Move, moving there and everything. And something I want to ask you, you know, as we kind of move out of the early 90s and, and that period and we start talking about the later 90s, uh-huh. um, in the later 90s, anyway, over here in the United States and New York, my perception was that after the big death metal boom of the early 90s, it wasn't all yeah. about heavy metal anymore. It was about hardcore and bands like Korn and things like that. And yeah. the, the Norwegian bands with the face paint kind of got big. Um, mm-hmm. Was do you think that that might have contributed to how uh, how you you decided to move to Europe to, to perform metal? Was that was it just not viable anymore in the United States to play metal? Yeah, I was just I was just uh, you know working and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. moving furniture, <laughs> moving furniture, and getting drunk and and uh, trying to figure out a way to do something else, you know, trying to get the keep the band going somehow, make it viable. It was hard times, you know. Yeah, no, I have to agree with you. the music scene changed for a while, for sure. Yeah, yeah. In, in the late nineties, uh, it was not fashionable I, to be into like. Uh, then what? I got a lucky break. You know, I, I never gave up. I, I I put together a new band and stuff, and you know, let's say between uh, let's think this through here. So, say 94, 95, 96, I was really struggling at that time and working, and uh, you know, I. I, I couldn't really couldn't keep a band together and get it to work for me the proper way. I, I think I did a demo in 1995, and that got sparked just a little bit of interest in Europe. And then uh, in 1998, I put together a, another lineup in Arizona, and we signed to Pavement Records. And then my life changed because a German company was a new par- partner of Pavement, and the guy decided to release the record in Germany. And my life changed ever since then. I've been here. After 98, I, I left. And in uh, 99, we did a European tour. And then in 2000, I moved here. And here we are in 2021 nearly. <laughs> and I've been here the whole time. Well, we... all, because, all because I never gave up. And I, like I said, I tried and tried. And we got this crappy record deal from Pavement. There was no money in it. It's just a distribution deal, nothing more. He didn't pay anything. I think we got a box of CDs or something, 25 CDs for that deal. <laughs> you know, something like this. But I took it, you know? Yeah. And just to get a CD out there and fucking it got me to Europe the following year. And, and obviously everything changed after that, you know? I don't know what would have happened if I didn't get out of there, you know? Yeah. I was depressed yeah. and struggling with life, and now life is good. <laughs> wow, man. So I know that in 1999, Master goes on a tour with Malevolent Creation and Crabathor. Yes. And that's where you meet the Crabathor guys and the seed is planted for you to come. It repl- is it Bruno, the guy that you replaced? Did I get that right? Yeah, Bruno quit. Yeah, yeah. he quit. And uh, and then uh, the guys called me and said, Paul, you know, would you, would you think about coming out here and jamming with us or what? I'm like, dude, I'm ready to get the fuck out of here. I'll move out right away. <laughs> so you were ready to go. So I, I was living in Arizona. I was living in Phoenix at the time, moving furniture with another company. Wow. And I was living with my buddy and his girlfriend in the house. And uh, we just we had just gotten that record deal, you know, with with uh, Pavement, you know, like I said. This was shortly after that. And I got I got uh, Kravathor a record deal on, on uh, System Shock, which was a, the Pavement subsidiary in Europe as well. And so that all worked out for me, you know, for sure. It got me out. You know, I sold all my shit in two weeks. 
I came to the Czech Republic and rented an apartment for six months and it was a difficult struggle, you know, but we practiced and we, and we played shows all summer and stuff. And and uh, then I came back and I worked and I, I sold more shit and I finally came back and moved out here permanently, yeah? Shortly after that. Okay, that that's what I want to ask you about. Um, that's, that's really interesting to me is the idea of just picking up and, and moving. When you move to the Czech Republic, First of all, are you in close proximity where you live to the other members of Crab Or Do you have some sort of social network there? That's how it worked. The uh, the guitar player was living uh, like from where where I live from where I lived then. He was living about you know maybe two miles away with his parents. Mm-hmm. And uh, the drummer coming from another village and. And I really had nothing when I came out here. We rented, the, I, like I said, I rented the apartment, and and he would pick me up, and we practiced five days a week. That was just the start of my new life out here. We would just practice, and then also that first summer we did festivals all over Czech and some shows in Germany and Slovakia, and and that lasted for about four years. And near the end of that, I, I got the guys from Kravathor to also record a master album with me as well to help me out. And again. This is how it all changed for me. Eventually, the guitar player would move to America and stay there, and I stayed in his hometown. Wow. We like trading places, like the movie, you know, trading places. That's exactly what happened, really. Wow. So the guitarist, the Crabathor, now lives in the. Is, is, it's not Chicago, is it? No, I think he's in. Because that would be I think crazy. He lives in Portland now, you know. That's still crazy. And then I think and, it's in Portland. You know, he and I, he and I were living in Arizona together, and moving furniture together for for. A good year or two you know like we were coming out here and doing shows in europe and then uh, we would go back to america do some shows in america and mexico and then work yeah. you know and he would send money home and i would send money to my girlfriend out here that's how it was for many years for a couple of years you know and then eventually like i said he decided well, i'm gonna stay in america and i said well i'm going back to check with my girlfriend dude and <laughs> that's exactly what happened Wow, what a! That's and then I got together, you know, some some members from the studio where I recorded the first records with Kravathor and Martyr and stuff. Uh, the brother of the studio owner, he played guitar and he had a great drummer, and uh, we got together and formed a new master. And then I was with them for 16 years out here, playing and touring the world. You know. Wow, there's there's a lot there. Um something because that's it's 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 a wild story because it's like you said you moved to the guy's hometown in the czech republic you stay there now he's living in the u.s um that's that's a lot of traveling in between something i want to ask you though when you first moved to the czech republic uh obviously you know the guys in Krabathor. you're probably ingratiated to some people from the local metal scene that they know but did you experience a lot of beer falling down drunk every day the local pubs well, you know, did you have any time. issues? Were, was there any hostility or people that didn't take to you because you were American or just a foreigner in general? No, just the opposite. Hmm. That was a big problem, to be honest with you. It's that being the American guy, the, the quote-unquote famous underground legend guy, everybody wanted to buy you a drink. <laughs> <laughs> so, so every fucking night, I was bombed out of my mind, falling down drunk every night for fucking six months. You know, I swear. Wow. Drunk for six months every day. We went out every night. Wow. You know, I, I can't believe my girlfriend, you know, actually married me. And I, you know, I, I obviously, 
slowed down on my drinking before that happened. But Jesus, I used to be a fucking wreck. I was drunk every day. But it was a good time. Don't get me wrong. I had a good time, you know. But I'm sure. But it was a bit much. Wow. It was just the opposite. People respected you because they knew who you were. Okay. You know? Okay, man. Um, and now something. Me, I'm, I'm 38, and I kind of came of age and got into death metal and underground music through the mid to late 90s. And by the 2000s, <laughs> the early 2000s, me and a lot of my friends were following uh, this kind of explosion of grindcore bands from the Czech Republic. Uh, con- yeah. Contrastic, Alienation Mental, Lycathia Aflame, Pigsty, to mention a few. Um, I yeah. don't. Yeah, could I don't. I don't. Maybe you could just speak to like because that was all going on while you were new to the country and going to shows, Pigsty. right? Yeah, they 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 call themselves Pigsty. Pigsty, that's right. Okay, I know it's Pigsty, but Pigsty, you know. And anyway, um, yeah, I, I will say the one thing about the Czech Republic is that uh, uh, as for the grind scene, even today, it's like. Uh, the best grind bands come from the Czech Republic. I, I don't know <laughs> I don't know why, but but they really got their grind shit down and they've had it down ever since I moved here, you know? True. Fleshless and all these different Fleshless. bands. Yeah, really. Pig Steel, like you said. You know, all all these grindcore bands, they've they've always been the best at it, you know. Is let's just say as often as I tour and stuff around the world, you know, I was working for a touring agency for for some years, for seven or eight years, I think, and I was doing merchandise and stuff for some years, and uh, I would see grindcore bands that would buy onto the bus, you know, every day, and and again, like I said, and then we'd get to the Czech Republic, like maybe play a grind festival, and the Czechs would just slaughter everybody. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm, I, I honestly never a, a big grind fan, but the point is, is that the, the Czechs would slaughter everybody at their grind. They were really good at what they do, you know? That's all I can tell you. And it's still the same way, you know? You can go into a small pub and see a great grindcore band, of course. I mean, obviously, why do you think the Obscene Extreme is so successful, you know? Yeah, yeah. It Well, I mean, it, it's like I said, at, at you know, years ago in the early 2000s, it became very apparent uh, you know, I, even in the, to the '90s, you had the older, you had me you know, like Malignant Tumor. I remember Hermaphrodite. Yeah. You know, things like that. Malignant Tumor is still going strong right now, man. Yeah. Believe me. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, I remember we did a scene extreme with them in Japan in 2015. We had a blast, drunk together, you know, for three days. <laughs> wow. Now, to, now, now that we got into and, like you know, the Malignant Tumor last year, they were having discussions with their bass player, and they. Offered me the job. I didn't take it, but it was still nice that they thought of me, you know? Yeah, that would have been quite a crossover there again. You know? They wrote me, Paul, you know, we're looking for a new bass player, and we first thought, you. And I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> that, it was that, a nice offer anyway. I didn't take it, but it was a nice offer, you know? Yeah, like one of those what-if comic books from back in the day. Yeah, um, you know. That, that would have been a crossover, but... Uh, while we're talking about the Czech Republic um, grindcore bands and death metal bands, I mean, there is a rich tradition over there in the Czech Republic and in Eastern Europe of death metal and grindcore that is a little bit under-credited, uh, maybe because the bands didn't have the proper promotion back in the day. Yeah. The, well, what, the, one cool thing is that, the one cool thing is that back in the day when they were in the Eastern Bloc, they were still doing shows and stuff. A thousand people coming to their gigs and they were worried about the police coming to Boston. They were like in underground bunkers and it's wow. crazy stuff, you know? Really cool, you know? 
Root and Crabathor and, and a lot of these different bands back in the day, 20 years ago, whatever, they were playing, like I said, underground bunkers and hidden and, you know, worried about getting arrested. Crazy times before I got here, you know. This yeah. is before I got here, of course, but... Yeah, and, and I've heard you say that when you got there, you know, respectfully, it, things were a little bit more run down. Oh, man, dude. I, I love telling that story. <laughs> it's, it's true, yo. I remember when it, when when I came from Prague, I got it from the airport. Everything was fine in Prague. It's a beautiful city then, too. And, you know, you start heading to where I live now, and uh, everything, you know, was like all Russian architecture, no paint. Everything was one color. I've been to Russia before, too, and, and there's a lot of places there that are still like that as well. But obviously, 20 years down the road, everything's painted here now. You know, they got money from the European Union. They remodel everything. It's beautiful. But believe me, when I first came, I was terrified before I got to this city here where I live. I was just like, what the fuck? Well, what have I done? You know, <laughs> it's really true. But like when you now when you come into into Brno now when you come into a city that's not so far from me, these same buildings that I was talking about they're all different colors now you know orange and blue and red and green different colors you know but back then they were all one color and it was pretty scary, believe me. Yeah. Um, what? I mean, we could we could talk about the differences all day, but like, what was like the biggest culture shock? that took you the longest thing to get used to when you finally settled into living in the Czech Republic full-time? The biggest culture shock? Oh, that's a good question. Well, everything was so cheap. For one thing. <laughs> I'm looking for yeah. something bad, Paul. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> there was something bad. Wow, oh, man. On, bad. Everything, everything was cheap. That was the point. I couldn't believe it. Like I said, everything was run, was run down at the time. And, yeah. But everything was yeah. cheap. I mean... Even today, you can still get a get a beer for a dollar. Yeah, well, it's still I'm, only about a dollar, maybe a dollar ten for a fucking beer off the, you know, off the tap, and it's some of the best beer in the world. Well, I know nice. America, you, you're gonna pay five dollars for a crappy beer. It's still a dollar here. Beer is still, and wine and Silvitza and this shit's all excellent. You know, good stuff here. Well, that that's I mean, an alcoholic. I mean, I'm not an alcoholic. I, I have my occasional drinks, you know, but. But uh, if you're an alcoholic, this is the place to be. <laughs> you guys well, want to move headquarters? Yeah, I know. That's that's what that, I'm joking when I yeah, say I, I, I want to hear something bad because we're all still over here in the U.S. <laughs> we're getting depressed listening to you, man. Uh, but big shout to our beer sponsor, Atlas Brewery from Washington, D.C. Some of the best beer in the entire world. Um, Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure. But but uh, but regardless, and they also host metal shows. So maybe when things get back to normalcy, they'll host Master one day. Who knows? Uh, that'd be great. I hope so. I hope we can return to the USA one day, of course. Well, speaking of that, Paul, something I wanted to ask you is, and, and on that note, is there anything that you do get um, nostalgic for about the United States, about Chicago, maybe Arizona, somewhere you live? Is there just something that, you know, when you go on tour, you got to stop and see or get? Or is there something you think about when you think about the United States uh, that makes you nostalgic for home? Well, yeah, you're, you're at the gas station. You want Chips Ahoy. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, chips Ahoy and a big, uh, big container of milk, you know. <laughs> wow, so you can't really get to that in the check like that? Uh, you know, you you actually could do it now. They have like American shops now where they're mm -hmm. fucking where they're uh, 
they're transporting all these American goods. I mean, you could actually get it, but who the fuck wants to pay five bucks for a fucking bag of chips away? Not right. me. It's ridiculous. <laughs> right, on, right, right. I get it. I get it. Okay, so I, there's a lot of Americans in Prague and stuff, and I'm sure that they're buying this stuff. Obviously, how else do these people? Uh, you know, staying in business. Also, I like peanut butter. Okay, you can get peanut butter in Europe and stuff, but you know, it's nothing like fucking uh, Skippy peanut butter, or you know, it's a special peanut butter. You know, yeah, it's like uh, in America, it's just special things that you can only get in America. I mean, you can buy it here again. You can, or you can have somebody send it to you, or whatever. But you know, there's just certain things. I like American peanut butter. You know, I like chips Ahoy. Yeah. Some shit you grew up with, you're, you're never going to forget, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, and it sounds silly, but it's, it's it's inborn in your brain, whatever, you know? You, no, it's true, man. That's true. Everybody has things like that. That's kind of what I was getting at. Um, and, and I'm setting you up, too, because I, I want to talk a little bit. There's so many master albums. We could be here all day. And it seems like, uh, if it's fair to say, you became a lot more prolific and productive once you made that move to the Czech Republic because we go from a kind of scattered master lineup for the last, you know, 10 to 15 years in the U.S. Uh, with, yeah. di with different record deals and things going on to, like, just straight up putting out an album almost every year or every two years. Yeah. Well, I, I, like I said, when I got that band together, we, we were together for 16 years. So Wow. And, yeah, of course, every year or every two years, I wrote so many songs that I, we've got to do another album, you know. And the guys were always up for that, you know. And... and that's why I was so productive. It was nice to have a solid lineup for so long. But, you know, things uh, change. You know, it was, it's like, it was like a, like a marriage or whatever. You're with people every day for 16 years, you know. I took the guys all over the world, you know, to South America, Central America, Mexico, uh, everywhere in Europe, you can imagine. I took them to Japan. I, I showed these guys a lot of stuff. And toward the end there, they just always wanted more. It was never enough. Never enough money. Oh, we need more money. Oh, we need more food. I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. More, 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 more. And the problem was with the guys that they didn't realize is that unlike bands like Motorhead or Metallica or whatever, you know, they get more money every year. Well, with Master, you're getting the same money for the shows, sometimes less every year, you know? You're just happy to be out there touring, and the guys took it for granted after a while. I paid them all the time, but they got to the point where, oh, I want more, I want more, and it was like, if I'm giving you more before you know it, I'm getting less than you are. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. You know? An underground death metal is a tough game. You know, and so they quit, you know, and now they're doing their own underground thing. The band that they quit when they joined me 16 years ago, this is 18 years ago now, because I've been with them for two years coming up soon and you know they're seeing nobody's interested in their old band <laughs> after 16 years nobody gives a rat's ass about their old band and they're seeing that I know that mm -hmm. the guys already the guitar players already started writing me hey Paul you know just because we're not in the band together we don't have to be enemies and and the mail before that six months ago hey Paul you know I know we're having hard times with the virus we can record a new album for you I'm not telling anybody you know Wow. They're, they want to come back. It's obvious. You know, they had it good. And they just, sometimes you, when you got it too good, you make mistakes. And, you know, after 16 years of having mo extra money every year, they had it good, good with me. And then all of a sudden, they don't have that money anymore. Nothing going on anymore in their lives. You know, they're just working, you know. 
Grass is always greener. That's life. Okay? I'm not disrespecting them here. That's life, you know. They quit. They made their choice, you know. Grass is always greener. They're great musicians. We did a lot of good records together. No doubt. Well, one record that I did want to kind of zero in on um, while, while we're talking to you uh, is The Spirit of the West from 2004. Okay. Um, and because I wanted to ask you some questions, I felt like maybe is it is it fair for me to say that maybe this album uh, or, or or to ask you were you in some way processing leaving the United States behind and growing up in the United States and moving to a new country with some of your work on that album? Sure, of course. I mean, this, part- was, the first, this was the first album with the guys. Yeah. And what also, what's interesting to make a note of is that at this time. Nobody spoke English, and nobody spoke Czech. Me- meaning, I spoke not a single word of Czech, and they spoke not a single world word of English. Mm. So this was really difficult. I got a new band together. I'm in a rehearsal studio, whatever the rehearsal room, and uh, my girlfriend at the time is there, and she's translating. You know, do this four times and do this five times, and you know. So what I would do is I would pick up the guitar. I would show the guitar player the riff on the guitar hand it to them and then eventually they learned you know about how many times that that one wasn't so difficult but but uh it was strange in the beginning and then then after like one or two rehearsals my girlfriend never came again so i had to just make faces and use my hands and you know and this is how we did that record we we did it this way for for two months of rehearsals still no real communication because we couldn't speak to each other except but hands and sign language, and we recorded that Spirit of the West record, really. And obviously, every year after that, it got to be better and better because I started taking the guys on tour, and the drummer, you know, he learned English. He still speaks English, I'm sure. But he learned English because we were touring with British bands, American bands, you know, all bands on, on tour have to speak English on the tour bus. So this was a good one for the drummer. He learned how to speak English. But I'm just saying, in the beginning, was hard times, but going back to what you said, yeah, Spirit of the West was was really about America, quite a bit about my my changeover. You're right. That's a good point. Well, yeah, it, it, I found it very striking while doing the research because the cover of the album is is basically you portrayed as an old West gunslinger. Well, that had a lot to do with the record company. It was his idea, but I like the idea. You know? <laughs> it's it's you know. different for death metal, but if you know the story, and, you know, it, like Johnny Cash had just passed away, and yeah. I was like. Hey, we should do a cover of Johnny Cash, The Ring of Fire. And that's what that's what changed the whole idea. It, it, for, we did The Ring of Fire, and then I started writing lyrics, more Western lyrics on some of the other songs as well, yo. Yeah. So it wasn't like planned yeah. that way, but it just kind of fell into that way. And then the record company was like, Paul, well, why don't we just do a Western layout? You can come to Germany. There's an old Western town that... A, you know, made up make-believe Western town. There's this old guy. He's on the record, whatever picture of him. He's got, and we went in there and shot pictures, and it was a, it was a fucking blast. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it's fun. I still have a picture of my cousin and I and my parents when I was a little kid from something similar at an amusement park here. We're all dressed up as cowboys. Perfect. But um, it's, I mean, so like you said, then I just decided, well, let's just make the whole fucking thing about the West. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and you know you have I read the lyrics because obviously you know Master's lyrics have you know you're kind of known for having more of a sarcastic, um, I don't know if you even want to call it political, but like a real life like more influenced by hardcore take on your lyrics. 
Um, you know, master yeah, fans, master fans kind of know you and love you for that. Whereas on this album, some of the songs I felt like had more of a nostalgic, even poetic, like the song uh, "Pistols, Whips, and Coyotes" has a very po- uh, uh, poetic take. Excuse me, poetic take on the American <laughs> frontier. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, almost like a poem about the well, American frontier. I, I, I said yeah, I wanted to go with a Western theme after that Ring of Fire, so I thought this Pistol Whips and Coyotes was right up that alley, you know? It's not the best song in the record, but whatever, you know. Well, I'm just talking about lyrically, it was a different departure yeah. for, for Master, and it kind of reflects that part of your life. And then you have even the other the, the other song that struck me was and got me kind of going down this, this train of thought, Another day in Phoenix. Um, oh yeah, okay. That was interesting to me I'll too. I'll tell you that one. I'll tell you what happened with that one. Okay. Okay. Another day in Phoenix. You know, that's uh, the backups are my uh, my wife and her two sisters on that one, and uh, we sampled the horns from Johnny Cash, which was illegal, you know, but back then you got away with it, <laughs> and we sampled the girls in the in the on the Ring of Fire too. You know, and we actually sampled Johnny Cash on one line on there too. If you really listen to that yeah. Ring of Fire cover, you can hear Johnny, and it's awesome. You know, yeah. It's, but anyway, it's interesting back composition. Is uh, this uh, another day in Phoenix? Is I lost my van when I moved to the Czech Republic. They finally repoed it. I own, only owed like maybe six hundred hours by that time after paying it off in twenty grand or whatever. And uh, let's just say my family members, some of them are millionaires or whatever. Let's just say back then. They wouldn't lend me the money to pay the damn thing off, and they repoed it. And so that's what that song's about. I would have, could have, should have, but I didn't. I should have paid the, the 600 bucks, but I didn't have any money, and nobody would help me out. Yeah. And by that time, I was living here, playing concerts, and trying to start a new life, you know? Yeah, you got to shift your priorities around, so. Yeah, and so I lost my van, and so I had to write a song about it, of course. <laughs> well, I mean, it's so. <laughs> this one says 20000 in the hole, you know? Well, what I mean, well, I, what, what, I paid twenty thousand, and they re, repoed it, and they sold it for a grand to somebody, and it was like, fuck, man, the van ran great. I yeah. lost it, so I wrote a song about it. So that's that's what it's about. I, well, I just had to bring it up because it speaks to how, like, it's it's very well, what a country and blues type of thing to write a song about is losing your vehicle to the bank, right? I mean, yeah, that, that's that's country music in a way, right there. And I just wanted <laughs> to bring that up because. Like I said, we talked about you moving to the Czech Republic. We talked about, yeah. you know, what makes you nostalgic for the United States or anything. Sure. And I thought that album in particular kind of uh, spoke to that um, uh, that, yeah. that transition, yeah. you know. So That's true. So, you know, like I said, Paul, you've, you've had uh, a lot going on. We've talked about a lot. We're thankful for your time, and we're going to be respectful no, of your time. I'm enjoying myself. I like talking about it. That's great. <laughs> awesome, man, because I do have a few more questions here. Um mm-hmm. And I know, you know, you're famously known to be a bass player and vocalist throughout most of the projects you're involved in. Uh, sure. But the last several years, you've been part of Joe Hanson and Speckman with Raga yeah. Johansson, uh, who people yeah, know from Roga. Roga, pardon me. Yeah, who people know from a yeah, multitude like, of other bands. It's like Roger, Roger in Swedish, Roga, yeah. Roga Johansson, yes. Yeah. Um, and you guys are kind of like a meeting of the minds in death metal. I love that you guys didn't pick some sort of like death metal moniker name for this. You just go by your last names as would like, you know, classical musicians or jazz players or something like that. Well, that's his idea, yo. <laughs> <laughs> it's his idea and his band, to be honest, yo. But I was saying earlier on that what I like about it, and actually funny that you mentioned that he sent me a new song today. 
for number six. Mm-hmm. The fifth Johansson Speckman was just released like two months ago, but yeah. anyway, we're, we're going to start working on a new album now. I'll be in the studio next week singing the first two songs. You know, we're doing a new album already. But uh, what, what's cool about it, like I said, is he'll write a full album of songs. There's like 12 songs coming. And then uh, in Norway, the other guy puts, puts the drums down. And then, like I said, Roga plays the bass, the guitar, and then they send it to me, and then I go to the studio. I write lyrics, all the lyrics, and then I go to the studio and sing, and then they mix and master it. Like I said, I do it with these guys, but it'll never happen with Master, you know? Because mm-hmm. you know? Master, it's just got to really be done right here, you know? That's just the way I feel about it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I understand, and Master comes from a very old-school place, um, whereas the nature of Johansson's and Speckman is more of uh, a project, you know, you're working yeah. on it. And, and but I, I, I'm, I'm saying I don't mind doing it because, yeah. like I said, I get to write my own lyrics and and sing them however the hell I want, and there's no input from the guys. They don't tell me where to sing, what to do, nothing. It's just, Paul, here's the new album, or here's the first two songs from the new album like I got today. Good luck, you know? I like that. <laughs> I was you gonna... know, and then, we'll do, then I'll... I'll you know, once the songs are done, I'll I'll download them and I'll go to the studio and bring them to the to my guy in the studio, and then I'll start singing them two at a time every week for the next six weeks. I was gonna say, does it feel like more freeing in a way to not have to worry about any of the the music or laying down bass and just kind of go go over it as a vocalist? It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Less pressure, it. right? <laughs> yeah, no, there's no pressure really. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm trying to sing good and stuff, and I'm old and stuff, so. But many people are saying the number five or whatever two months ago. They were saying that's the best vocals I did in many years. So this the next one's going to be the same, of course. You know. Well, I'm... I quit smoking, and you know, it, it helps. You know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm sure it helps. Um, uh, and mm-hmm. on that note, I mean, you've been doing the extreme vocals for a very long time, uh, consistently through the years. Have you ever had a point where you lost your voice? Have you ever not been able to do a show because you lost your voice or, or or something like that? No, I never canceled a show in my life. Wow. But, okay. but uh, Flex. yeah, like, uh, let's say last year or whatever, October tour, uh, I was up all night doing cocaine, you know, which okay. you know, is not normal for me, but whatever. Somebody, a Party's friend of part. mine, you know, he blasted me a couple of cocaine lines on my hand there at, Two o'clock in the morning, and and when you're doing cocaine, you're smoking a lot. So I was smoking lots of cigarettes, you know. I smoked like a whole pack probably by morning, and then uh, I got on stage in Belgium, and and yeah, I had trouble with that show. But thankfully, the next day, my voice was back to completely to normal. So I learned a lesson again. You're never too old to learn. No cocaine on tour, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good pointer. Well, now something I neglected to bring up earlier, and you you very speak very candidly about this, and I, I ask this respectfully because I've heard you speak uh, openly about it in a prior interview, was that in the late '80s the members of Master al- allegedly there was a lot of cocaine use. Oh yeah, Master and, and uh, Abomination too. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, yeah, I the, the original Abomination demos was all cocaine for sure. Dude. We were speeding on that stuff. So that's the you first know. album with the time signature stuff. No, the demos, not the <laughs> albums, but the demos. The first two demos, you know. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, um, I, I, off our rocker back then, you know. 
Well, I mean, I have a friend who, um, I, you know, I, I won't mention his name, but he, he was partying pretty hard during that time period, too. And he tells me that back then the cocaine was a totally different animal than today. He said it was way more pure. He calls it the Pablo era, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. sure. Wow, man. And I'm not going to say who, but one of the guys was... Let's just say one of the guys in one of the bands was a dealer, so we got the best stuff. Nice. Not yeah. going to say who, but just, you know. Yeah. yeah. Got the best stuff, for sure. And it was free, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly. I'm sure the statute of limitations is over, and uh, and all that coke has been is long gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a long time ago, yeah. But. Interesting, man. Um, and, you know, the 80s, I've, you know, we talk about um, a, a lot Wait, of times. I, I wanted to go back to one thing really quick. Sure. So, uh, yeah, about losing your voice. Um. What, you, what I found that you have to do is uh, really quick is when there's a tour coming up, I have to sing in the basement like for maybe two months. If I don't have a band, for example, or whatever, like the guys are in America, whatever. And uh, I have to sing for two months, like three or four days a week, every week. I have to be ready for the tour, you know? You have to sing the set. You know, I, I usually play bass and sing in the basement, and I play the show you know, three or four days a week, sometimes five days a week for several months. And then when I get there, it's simple. But years ago, I wasn't that smart. You know, 20 years ago when I started doing this stuff, yeah, you could lose your voice if you didn't practice enough. I learned that early on and it's important. You gotta, you gotta screen your ass off often before you go on a tour, otherwise you're gonna run into trouble. Yeah, right. Maybe so the younger guys don't have trouble, but I'm saying us older guys, you got to be ready for a tour. Yeah. Now go. What, next question. Sorry. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> but that's just like a prolonged warm-up period when you're doing something that yeah. extreme. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, wow. So, so that that kind of brings us, uh, you know, up to date. And like everybody we've talked to, uh, the coronavirus um, kind of hit everybody. We know that you make your living as a touring musician and stuff, so it probably hits you especially hard this year, right? I'm sure you had to cancel a lot of shows. Yeah. Yeah, the last shows were in Mexico in March. That was a long time ago, yeah. Were you able to at least complete the tour, or was it like a situation yeah, where... Yeah, yeah, we shows in March. Yeah, it was just it was like a week of shows for Death Strike. And, and you know, it's like when we got to... Uh, let me think about it here. Okay, we're, we started in Mexico. And start, we did uh, Costa Rica, then we did uh, El Salvador. In Honduras, and I remember it, it might have been Honduras when we got off the plane. They put that temperature thing on your head. That was the first time I'd ever seen it. Obviously, it's everywhere now. Yeah. But this was a surprise, you know. That was the first time I'd seen it. You know, people weren't weren't wearing masks or anything yet either. You know. But all of a sudden, a lady puts the temperature thing on my head, and she showed me the temperature. Okay, you can go. And I'm like, what the fuck was that? Little did I know what we were headed for after that. <laughs> yeah, that can't be good. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, obviously here in New York, we know there's no shows going, coming on anytime soon. Uh, where where you're at, is, is, are, are, is there anything picking up in Europe, in the Czech Republic? Are, is there live music uh, coming up? Or? There, there's like, uh, like, for example, Asphyx has been doing a couple of shows, and they probably have a couple more shows coming up. Like in Holland and Germany... They have special shows, you know, like where you're going to play on Friday and it's seated people in a the theater and there's a limited amount of people, 100 or 200 people. So it sells out right away. It's interesting. People have to sit down. You're, you're far away from the stage. There's no slam dancing or dancing. or You have to sit, you know. Yeah. 
But, uh, you know, good for the bands that can do that. But like I told you, my band, the guys are in America, so it doesn't work for me. You need to have a band to be able to play one or two shows a month. You got to have guys that are local, of course, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, is it too soon to there's say? No tours going on. There's no tours going on. No, not at all, man. It sucks. Yeah. You know? Yeah, everybody's I had shows. I had shows scheduled for South America. I had shows scheduled for uh, Australia, for Asia. You know, we had a couple European tours. A lot of stuff scheduled this year, and obviously it's all canceled. Nothing I can do, you know. The guys are stuck in America, and not too many Americans are flying over here. It's not so easy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just to get money to fly them over, um, with you know, with nothing going on. Uh, something yeah, that- I mean, exactly. You can't have the guys come over here and sit around my house for a month for one show, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your, your wife probably wouldn't appreciate it. No. Uh- <laughs> so, I mean, with, with that being said, um, uh, you know, you, you guys, you put out the uh, the Germs of Circumstance is the 2020 latest album from Johansson and Speckman. Uh, you yeah. said you're working on another one. Uh, is mm-hmm. there anything else that fans of your work can can check out? I mean, uh, you know, we talked about the show situation. I guess there's probably no no plans for a live stream event or anything like that. Is there any? Is there any? No, more? that's and that, there's another thing too. You, just my opinion. I'm not into that either, man. Yeah, you know. Yeah. The, the, Even if I had a band, I'm not going to do a live stream. That's not fucking metal, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> that I know a lot me. of my friends are doing live streams. Okay, good luck for you guys, but it. That's nothing for me, dude. If there ain't no people here, I ain't doing nothing, man. Come on. Yeah, I got to respect it. I got to respect it, man. I, I understand. It's, it's not surprising to hear you say that. Um, uh, I, I, I understand, definitely. Uh, we've been trying to cover it and see what goes on. It's you know, it's never going to be the same as, as an actual real-life show. Uh, with, I mean, I have, like, uh, I, I have 10 shows scheduled for April in Spain. I have six shows or seven shows scheduled, uh, scheduled in uh, Ukraine. For May, but you know, I don't know. I have to wait and see what happens in January if it can really be possible. Because this stupid virus keeps flaring up, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's kind of waiting on the edge of their uh, their, their seat to see what happens next, man. Yeah, and it's it's you know, it's a great way for the government to control everybody too and tell you what to do and when to do it. It's, it's a shitty time right now, you know. Yeah, you know, I've heard you speak to something like that in older interviews from years past. Uh, yeah, and, and the he, same way now, too, you know? Yeah, here we are, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's like a lot of the shit, uh, like the Human Machine album, that talks a lot about it, and here we are. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. scary, man. It's, I really hope that something changes, you know. Like we all do. You know? Of course, of course. Yeah, in- interesting time, man. And, um... Uh, you know, with, with that being said, uh, the latest Master album was uh, Vindictive Miscreant on Transcending Obscurity. I believe it's still available in some formats, and people can always get it yeah. on uh, Bandcamp or whatever the digital format is. Um, sure. I mentioned jo- Johansson. It's probably Johansson uh, and Speckman, right, because they're from Sweden. Uh, yeah. The, the Germs of Circumstance. Now, the Germs of Circumstance, that's not just a coincidentally titled album, right? Uh, yeah. Actually, it, uh, you, you didn't ask me about songwriting. About songwriting? Uh, yeah, you didn't. You didn't really ask me about songwriting, and that's a, it's just a strange one that I got to tell you. <laughs> yeah, lay it on. <laughs> so, us, like, man. Yeah. Even for example, today, you know, uh, Johansson sent me a a song today, like I said, and an hour later, I finished the lyrics. Um, I uh, 
I write songs in a strange way. Like when he sends me stuff, I just uh, I write whatever comes to my mind. I'll, I'll listen to a song two or three times, and usually I'll have the whole thing written in, in a short time, yo. Okay. And uh, it's the same with the master records, the last five or six albums. I write the music first, and, and then uh, I listen to the music on cassette or whatever format I can I can get it on, and and the lyrics just kind of come to me, you know? Like, I don't, uh, like, back in the day, early days, you know, I had to, like, on the seventh day, God created master, I wrote about specific subjects, and I actually really thought about the stuff, and now, like, for example, the germs of circumstance, these words just came out and seemed to be fitting, and it worked, you know? Hmm. I think it comes from reading so much. I read books all the time, you know, mostly murder mysteries, but still. <laughs> wow. All right. But I, I read a lot. I read every day, and and uh, words just come to my mind. And, and sometimes they're great, and sometimes they're okay. You know, you, you know what I mean? You, you hit a, a flow. Um, and yeah. so you you say uh, you read a lot. Maybe, um, what, like, what are you reading right now? What are some, some books you've been reading lately? I uh, just... I'm just reading murder mysteries and stuff, all different people. I, I just go on Amazon and I, I look for books and I just buy them, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, I, I, I like reading about, uh, like I said, murder. And and uh, I also like reading about rock stars. I, I'm reading, uh, like, uh, the next book is that uh, uh, The Who, you know, The Guitar Player. It, that's the next book. You know, I read Roger Daltrey's book, too. Next is Pete Townsend. You know, I read the bass player from Alice Cooper. I like reading about these guys and see what the hell happened in their lives as well. You know, that's something else I really like, you know? Yeah, yeah. I've, I actually read a few books about Joey Ramone um, th- that I, I was talking about on the podcast a while back. That's that's uh, that's always interesting to read about some of these people we look up to in rock music. Yeah, you know. And, well, like I said, and, and yeah, go ahead. What was I say? Well, no, just on that note, I was going to say you also uh, had a book published. It was a pictorial book with some of the history of your music. Uh, Spe- yeah. Speckman, Underground Survivor, the pictorial. Sure. Yeah. That's still out there. It's still available. If anybody wants to buy it, get a hold of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's uh, it's on your website, right? You have a website where yeah. you sell a lot of your merchandise. Um, sure. I'm, I'm looking for it right now. What's the, what's the address? Do you have it? Uh, Speckman, uh, specmetal.com or something. We, we can we can edit this part to make it sound smooth, don't we? Yeah, right. It's the one thing I didn't write down. Hold on a second. No problem. Yeah, uh, so the, the website is um, specmetal.net, S-P-E-C-K-M-E-T-A-L.net. Just for the listeners, if anybody wants to check out what merchandise is available, look into that book. And there, I, I understand there were plans for like a more, not just a pictorial, but like a formal autobiography book at one point. Is that still a plan? Yeah, it's when I retire, but I'm not ready for that yet. I love it. That's the that's a great <laughs> answer. That's a great answer, man. It's like, it's like uh, it'll be time to slam everybody when I retire. You know, you don't want to do that when you're still traveling the world. Then you're going to be in a fight all the time with all these dickheads, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's a bunch of shit talking about a bunch of assholes in the business, you know. And yeah, and yeah like yeah. the interview, I didn't talk about any assholes. I, I try and not talk about assholes, you know, when I'm doing interviews. But 
eventually when a book comes out, a lot of people are going to be pissed off. You know, it's better to do it when I retire, you know? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Um, the truth hurts. You know? <laughs> I, yeah, we would. Well, we would love to pick up this interview when you're ready to do that. too. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, <laughs> no problem. Uh, uh, well, on that note, one one last question before we wind things down. Sure. Um, you know, we always ask our guests if they could. And this might be difficult because I've heard you say in the past that you don't keep up on a lot of newer music. You stay with the classics that inspire you. Um but we always ask the guests to recommend one older album and one newer album by any artist. Doesn't have to be metal, just uh, something older and something newer that Paul Speckman recommends we check out. Shit. <laughs> That's a tough one. Motorhead, No Sleep Till Hammersmith, of course. Okay. Okay. And something new? Shit. This I is don't listen I... to anything. That's a problem. <laughs> That's why I was curious. Yeah, I don't listen to anything new, so that's not gonna, that's, you're not going to get anything from me. All right, we'll double down on the old one, then. What's another old one to recommend? Huh? Uh, we'll double down on the old, then. What's another older one that you uh, recommend? How about Rainbow Rising? I'm really old, you know? <laughs> Rainbow Rising. And, Motor, and Motorhead, what was it, No Sleep Till Hammersmith? Yeah. Okay. The first double, yeah, for sure. Okay, man. All right, solid picks. Um, and Paul, like I said, to be respectful of your time and of our format, uh, we really appreciate everything that we just talked about. We appreciate having you on today, man. This was awesome. Um, I had a good time too. Thank you very much for your time as well. It was a blast. Yeah, yeah, dude. Uh, and um, uh, you know, it was great to just kind of hash out. Like, like we said, you have a long discography. As I mentioned before, just for the listeners, the latest Johansson and Speckman album is "The Germs of Circumstance," uh, two thousand twenty. Um, the most what a hell of a coincidence out of germs of circumstance. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But you got that third eye thing going with the lyrics nowadays. You're in the flow. Yeah, um, it's true, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the most recent master album is Vindictive Miscreant on Transcending yeah. Obscurity. Uh, sure. if, people, if people want to go back and check out Crabathor, that's highly recommended. And the album, un- the album's Unfortunately Dead and Dissuade Truth are the albums that feature you, Paul, right? Yeah. And everybody hated them, but they're good albums anyway. <laughs> I thought they were good. I thought they went a little bit more of a grindcore, brutal direction for Crabathor, if anything. Yeah, well, the Czech and the Slovak people didn't like the records, so but it doesn't matter. That's life, you know. Uh, I don't care. You can't please, every, can't me, please you everybody, know? you know. Yeah. So, uh, Paul, with, with that in mind, just any final message to uh, followers and fans of your music throughout the years and listeners to our, our, our program? Yeah, support the underground, support the old school, be careful out there, and don't let your governments control your life, man. Keep fighting out there in the streets, man. That's all I can say. Hell yeah. Scary right. times, yo. Yeah. You know, we want to be, we be free, yo. Yep, absolutely. Paul Speckman of, of Master uh, and many other projects and bands throughout the years. We thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it, brother. And we will be in touch thank with you, you in the next few weeks as the episode is uh, produced and uploaded, okay? All right, you guys have a good afternoon, yo. All right, thanks, man. Thank you very much, man. Really appreciate Bye. it. Yeah, cheers. We'll be in touch. Thanks, Paul.
All right. Wow. Uh, Paul Speckman of Master uh, and all of his other projects and bands that we talked about. I um, I need a, a breath of fresh air. Um, I, I need oh, a glass of water. Yeah, I think, I think he just wrapped up the show. That uh, was a lot. By showing us how to do it. Yeah. That we got flexed on. Yeah. The yeah the entire worldwide death metal community just got flexed on. Uh, no, all, look, all kidding aside, shout out to Paul Speckman. We really appreciate his time and his contributions um, and his candor. Uh, yeah. He kept it real all the way. Uh, he kept it funky 100% with mm-hmm. us, man. So we appreciate that. We got to have him back when he's ready to retire, like he said. Oh, I'm excited for that <laughs> one. Um, yeah, I, I don't even know what to say anymore, man. Uh, that was that was quite a tale that he told. I need a drink, quite frankly. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, great. Yeah, we we, we actually, there's drinks all around us right now, uh, thanks to Atlas Brewing. Yeah. <laughs> Atlas Brew Works, Washington, D.C. They got a website. You can order yeah. the beer or you can go there. They got a yeah. menu. They got food. They used to have shows. Maybe they'll have shows again. Yeah, it's you crazy think, times. You think Congress is where the important people are in D.C.? Nope. nope. They're nope. at Atlas. Yeah. Making you beer. Solar-powered beer. A ladybug just crawled onto my can of beer. That literally happened. That's for uh, a shoot. That is very we're, weird. We're yeah. indoors. That's Atlas Brew Works telling you. That's that's nature telling you uh, that this giant flaming zombie polar bear double IPA is the beer I should drink right now. Perhaps. Now, how is that one? I'm not. I'm not drinking that. Um, and uh, you're gonna well, have listeners. Listen up. Yeah, listen. Listen. It's not um, selling out if you're drunk. Yeah. This this Atlas Brew Works. No, we're not getting paid. We're getting paid in beer. Like, yeah. like a death metal band should. We're getting paid in beer uh, to, to talk about this. No, no, we're not even. There was no formal agreement. There's no contract. Uh, Kim Fowley did not work out a multi-million, that multi-tiered oh, uh, uh, deal with us for this. <laughs> Uh, Atlas Brew Works just reached out and sent us some beer. We're friendly. Artificial Brain performed there a few years back. Now I'm holding in my hand this bright green can of giant flaming zombie polar bear double IPA. Alcohol by volume 9.4%. Not playing with you. Breathe, Will. Um, (laughs) I can't with this beer. I'm I'm a giant zombie polar bear drinking this. They said pair it with five alarm chili. Tomahawk steak or snow days. I'm pairing it with you guys right now. That's about it. And mm. I got to read this. Dude, look at There's like a literally a ripped apart zombie bear on it. Um, where's the little. Uh, the bug's uh, still on. Bottom. Under the barcode. Okay. The bu- <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure I don't squash this bug. I got to be delicate with this bug. But no, this is. Uh, this has quite a bite to it. Um, this, you know, I'm not a beer connoisseur. It's got. Let me. Let me. The double IPA is going to have a bite. Yeah. I mean, you're yeah. getting, once you get into the single IPA, then you're bite, you're in bite territory. A lot of hops there. Mm. Yeah, this has quite a bite. It's got like a little bitter snap to it, but then once it goes down, um, it's a, it's a most pleasurable sensation. Listen, this is a nice beer. It doesn't play with you after one can. You got the big nine point four ALC. That's what we're looking for here, That's Huntington right. Station, where I'm from. Thank you, um, Atlas Brew. I have better friends now because yeah. of you. There you go. Uh, but enough about me and my uh, metaphorical weekend that's going on in my head as I drink this Atlas Brew Works beer. On a Monday morning. Yeah. How's God, your next it. weekend? Yeah. <laughs> How's that beer you guys are drinking? Because you guys got a different can than me get right now. Your can is not. You can't see the bright green on your can from a mile away. No, we got this uh, this this hot orange and this fire yellow going on right now. The Ponzi IPA. Oh. Uh, also brewed by oh. Atlas Brew Works in Washington, D.C. Like we told you about. Uh, damn, get your plates ready because we're going to pair this with Indian curry. Ooh, 
Wow. We're gonna maybe we're gonna spin the globe around and pair it with some carne asada. They're trying to spice me out here. Holy crap. Take me to the fucking uh, Christmas boardwalk because we're salt and caramel and we're drinking this beer. Mm. Um, just a fantastic uh, single IPA, a little less bite. Okay. But, you know, still has some teeth. Yeah, yeah. I, I took I took it to the head on this one. This one's got some bite to it. Yeah, you might uh, I might need your keys, but um either way. Mm. Alicia this, keys. Oh. Um oh. so yeah, the, the this IPA easy to put back. It's uh it's uh it's refreshing for an IPA. You know, a lot of IPAs will get uh they're not looking to get refreshing. This one's nice. Yeah. Smooth. God, Atlas, we're putting the work in, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we expect so nothing much. in return. Thank you so much. But listen, enough about Atlas Brew Works in Washington, D.C., uh, purveyor of fine beers. Um, <laughs> shout out to them. Uh, Best beer. You know what else is easy to put back? Paul Speckman found it very easy to put us back into the heyday of death metal history today, and we appreciate him for that. Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah, I'm drinking and driving on the Segway. I apologize. But I'm not going to drink and drive my car today. That's our PSA. Um, uh, do the Uber. Do the taxi cabs. Don't drink and drive. Uh, uh, and you know who else didn't drink a drive that he talked about? Paul Speckman when he first moved to the Czech Republic and was drinking those beers. <laughs> yeah, he was putting yeah. them down. He was drinking that shit. Um, Foot traffic. Yeah. And, and, yeah, great, great old school lore like we love here. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one of the, are you, I don't know if are you okay. Well, we didn't even ask you after this for being uh, flexed on so much. I need a nap and a Vicks vapor rub. Uh, I haven't been flexed on this hard since uh, I played uh, uh, a game of hide-and-go-seek with my nephew and felt like the members of Tomorrow's Victim rugbied my knee. Yeah, this kid's that? good. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I was flexed on pretty hard. I thought I knew about death metal. Uh, we all did. Paul Speckman put us in the um, uh, figure four leg lock and, and oh, yeah, told see. us that we didn't even ask about songwriting. Yep. See, he didn't mention wrestling once. He also didn't say anything fishing, so let's leave it out for this episode. We got to say mm-hmm. more for Paul Speckman part two. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't discount him. Don't, don't count him out yet. No, was, we, don't he, give him the, the 10 count outside of the ring yet. I, I feel like I he would have given us another hour and a half. He was not respectful of our time. Oh, he, well. He, he was ready to talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, look, the guy loves metal. He's very proud of his story, as yep. he should be. He's got a lot to stand on. Um, and that's why I want to wrap it up uh, with the Speckman talk about telling you guys, check out the discography. Yes. Um, Master has uh, a long discography, a long history. If you look into the other musicians involved, uh, there's a lot to go on there. There's a lot of bands. And, um, you know, I mentioned it during the interview. All, all kidding aside right now, we have that discussion that we've gotten into uh, Possessed, Death, Necrophagia, who came first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, we found out today. It was Master. It was Paul Speckman. Um, so tilt of the hat to him and to all the people who've been involved in that legacy. We appreciate his time. Absolutely. Um, and then, wait, are we going to just cut it there? Or do you want to do a little outro bit? With, uh, with the, uh, the no, plugs? because we're we're not living off our music like Paul Speckman is very proud to be doing. We actually need people to go to Patreon. Uh, they go. <laughs> they have to go to heavyholepodcast.com. Uh, join the Patreon. You get bonus episodes. You get video clips early. You get little extra stuff. Uh, it's a beautiful experience. Um, check us out on that social media. We got the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook, all that hot shit. Mm-hmm. Um, check that heavyholepodcast.com slash shop. We're going to be throwing some stuff in there. Beautiful. Santa's been good. Santa's been great. Yeah. yeah. And he's been decent as well. So uh, yeah. we're going to pass that savings on to you. Heavyholepodcast.com slash shop. And uh, check it out. Maybe it fits you. Maybe Maybe it doesn't. Or two. Yeah. Or one. <laughs>